Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Certainly when I was growing up, being funny didn't make me cool anywhere outside my house. Des baisers, des baisers encore, des baisers, un gros baiser mouillé de la voisine d'à côté, un baiser plein de rouge à lèvres de la gardienne Marie-Ève. It's about all these different people kissing you when you're a kid. People would tell me then, you can't dress up, you don't want to look distracting, you have to wear a hoodie and jeans. Women, we were told to be invisible. If you want to do this man's job, try to make it not so obvious that you are a lady. Hello, I'm Samira Ahmed, and welcome to How I Found My Voice, the podcast that goes behind the celebrity to try to find out what went into the making of a talent. With me is comedian Catherine Ryan, raised in Canada of Canadian-Irish parents, but she's very much a Londoner now, and her stand-up routines often target white and male privilege, reflect on the challenges of being a single mother, and I think show a fearless physical daring to impersonate from Taylor Swift to Beyonce. Catherine's profile has skyrocketed in recent years. Her latest work is The Fix, a panel show on Netflix. There's a stand-up special, Glitter Room, and her sold-out 2018 UK tour included an unprecedented four-week run at London's Garrick Theatre in the West End. She's also writing, producing and starring in her first scripted series, The Duchess, which will stream in six 30-minute episodes on Netflix about a single mum fixated on her daughter. I want to take you back. Watching your routines, I'm fascinated by this comedic, physical fearlessness you have on stage where you stomp around. Has this always been you? I was wondering, when you were a child, were you like this? I always valued comedy as a child, and I didn't know that I would be a performer, or certainly not that I would be a stand-up comedian. But we did musical theater and dance and singing and piano and gymnastics, and we were quite overscheduled because there's not much else to do in a small town if you don't have lessons. But then, because my parents sent me to French school, and I mean all French, zero English, all French. My parents didn't speak French. They were just sadists. Uh, we went to the school, and they have speech competitions in in French school systems for some reason. You say, I don't know, what did they? What did we call it? Is it like elocution? Did you recite a poem or something? Yeah, we do. Um, oh, I, oh, see, this is how what your brain just starts to atrophy as you get older. I forget what it was called, but... We would do speech competitions, yes, public speaking contests. I wondered if it was partly um, from the Irish side, because I went to a school run by um, Irish Catholic nuns, and we all had elocution, and they taught you to, and it uh, it was a performance thing in a way. Yeah. You know. But I would do mine very feminist, very advocate. 
uh, my first one that, and I would win every single time. It was my thing. I'm like, yes, it's speech season. But they would tell me to stand still because I would try to walk around the stage oh, and be physical and say, uh-uh, Catherine, you had to like stay still. And the first one I did, and it's on YouTube actually, I was 10 years old. It's called Le Baiser, and it was, um, which means kisses. Yeah. Des baisers, des baisers encore, des baisers, un gros baiser mouillé de la voisine d'à côté, un baiser plein de rouge à lèvres de la gardienne Marie-Ève. It's about all these different people kissing you when you're a kid and how your parents would tell you, kiss that person, give your uncle a kiss, give the neighbor a kiss, don't hurt someone's feelings by refusing a kiss. And at the end, it was like, I don't have to kiss anybody that I want to. Seulement quand j'ai envie, compris, or something like that. And I, I wouldn't even think at the time how um, truly disruptive and, you know, uh, strong of a poem that was to say, but that's the one I chose. And the message in that as well about defying the idea that girls are supposed to be polite right. and compliant and not embarrass Yeah, it's about others. consent and ownership. And I was always a little bit disruptive that way. Mm. And they said, stand still, Catherine. Choose a nice poem, Catherine. <laughs> so you grew up in a quite small town. Is it Sarnia in Ontario? What kind of home, what kind of household was it you were growing up in? Um, well, having a dad that was from a different country uh, was not very common, although he did have sort of an Irish community around him. So I don't know what was happening with all these Irish men that they decided to move to such a strange small town. He wasn't like a sophisticated Dubliner or something, was he? No, <laughs> no. My dad's from Cork. I think he grew up without shoes. But my mom thought he was sophisticated because she'd never met another man from a different country before, as far as I know. It's like, ooh. Exotic. He's from Japan. Nope, Ireland. And um, my dad was tall and played rugby and really handsome and really funny and charming. And so, and my mom was just this lovely, beautiful, blonde, tiny woman. And my mom, I think, struggled a lot. I would watch my mom. She definitely had body dysmorphia, still does. She was told growing up that women were dumb broads and she had to be thin and be quiet. And so I watched her really do a job she didn't love all her life, raise these three girls with a husband who really didn't want to be married to someone like my mom. My mom was a little bit disruptive, even for him. And my dad now has a partner who's perfectly suited to him and they they golf and, you know, she's a a more conservative person than my mother was. Is your mother a performer herself? She is. So now my mom, quite tragically, really, never got to do what she wanted to do, and that was my fault for being born. But um, now she participates in independent films and does commercials now and then, and she still is very involved in local musical theater and, of course, is a patron of the arts, goes to see many, many plays, does voiceovers and things. But my mom is a frustrated performer, and it's such a shame but a lot of the women in my family really were beholden to these cultural norms and weren't allowed to truly find their voices. So when you were growing up in this house, I suppose there's a couple of things. One, was it a house where kind of wit and joking around was a thing? Yeah. So both my parents were really funny. Um, and I certainly understood that if you wanted attention when all the family came around, that you had to be an engaging child it wasn't the way culture is now where, where kids are kids and we get down on the floor and do what the children want to do. It was the adults were smoking and drinking and chatting at the kitchen table. And if you wanted any attention, you'd sit and you'd have to hold your own and participate in their conversation and get attention by being funny. And I could also get out of trouble. I knew that if I made my mother laugh, then I would never get in trouble for any type of bullying that I uh, <laughs> subjected my sisters to. <laughs> Yeah, you could be. I knew that comedy was 
um, a force. I knew that comedy was valued and having a sense of humor was a cool thing in my house, not at school. In the house, do you remember the first time you realized as a child that you were funny? I I made my sisters laugh a lot and I would entertain them, you know, before the days of uh, iPads. We pretended we were the Golden Girls sometimes. We watched a lot of – it's interesting from – a television perspective. Now, in the 90s, there were so many black families on television. All these sitcoms in the 90s, like Martin and Living Color and Different Worlds and Living Single and Fresh Prince. Um, Cosby's. Yes. Well, yes. That was a great show during that time. Um, And I I saw all these real strong, funny women, um, and I loved them. And I also loved the Golden Girls, which, again— do we see women in their 70s yeah. in a variety of sexual relationships living in a matriarchy? Where's that sitcom now? It doesn't exist. So my sisters and I, I would just either dress them up, force one of them to be Martin Lawrence, and the other one would be his girlfriend, Gina. And I would uh, just do plays and things. Or we'd take different bedrooms in the house, and those we would be the golden girls. But we had babies for some reason. We were like elderly women who each had a different baby. We'd go to each other's house. We had all kinds of imaginary friends and all that type of stuff. And then um, I think the first time I made a group of adults laugh is when Michael Jackson uh, sang with the child of a soldier in the Gulf War at maybe the Super Bowl. The little boy sang, did you ever know that you're my hero? Um, But he sang it in a way that I, I mean, it's very unfair now, but I sort of made fun of. And I would sing that for the family. But like the little boy, he sort of sang it like this. Like, <laughs> did you ever know that you're my hero? It was adorable, but I'd never heard that accent before. So I learned I could do accents and I could perform. And watching some of these shows, some of them you watched with your mother, she had an impact, didn't she? Yeah, my mom and I would watch David Letterman's show, late night stand-up, really, and films with Beth Midler and Cher and those types, Barbara Streisand, my mother loved. These disruptive women, I suppose, um, Joan Rivers and all of that. We And, of course, the Golden Girls, we would watch that. We'd watch Roseanne. And my mom would say, you could do that. You could do what David Letterman does. And I just thought, that's so interesting. And she would say it to you a lot, didn't she? All the time. So you'll do that. You could do that. Or Saturday Night Live. She wanted me to be on uh, the satirical American show, Saturday Night Live. And I said, oh, this woman is crazy. I'm going to be a beautiful, quiet, calm wife when I grow up. I'm not going to be disruptive. I'm going to be pretty and I'm going to be quiet. I thought I'd be a cheerleader or something. (laughs) When when did you put together the fact that your mother had been giving you this message from a young age and realize it was what you were going to do? I still haven't really realized it. I still think I might be a cheerleader. (laughs) It's so interesting, the, the conscious message that you give to your children versus the culture that you create for them in your home. So while my mother was overtly saying, consciously, being funny is cool. You can be a comedian. You could do this this unconventional job for a young woman. Certainly it would have been in the 90s when she was saying it. 
But I still saw, you know, my mother, it meant a lot to her that she looked pretty. I see her get punished for saying something that was disruptive or not behaving the way that she was expected to behave at a Christmas party. Or So, you know, I had both messages, some unconscious and some very conscious messages. So I knew, I knew that you'd have an easier life if you were pretty and quiet. When you were a schoolgirl, you talked about doing kind of the speech stuff. Would you ever have thought you were going to be the woman you are now in terms of the career you've chosen and the confidence that you have? No, I mean, I was always pretty confident, even when I was bullied. I mean, I use the word bullied. I don't know what it was. You know, people didn't like me and they let me know it. A group of girls made a newspaper about my friends and me, and they put me on the cover next to a photo of a camel. And they were like, oh, look, um, thank God for makeup. Just making fun of the way I looked and then making fun of our, like, dance group, things like that. All my other girlfriends cried, floods of tears, hauled into the principal's office. And I wasn't sad. I was like, look at this. We're famous. They love us. They're obsessed with us. They made a newspaper about us. We're so famous. I was always very comfortable with the idea that you just had to move forward. Sometimes you have to move forward just to stand still, do what you want to do, and there will always be people who don't like it. I was always okay with that. I never expected in a million years that everyone would like me. So that is, I mean, a very important foundation for the job that I have now, though it's not um, certainly a prerequisite. Loads of comedians that I know expect everyone to like them, and they get wounded if people don't. So I'm very lucky. I think that that quality would serve anyone well in any industry. Because equally, I've heard comedians, including people like Eric Idle, you know, mm. Monty Python, say that comedy was partly a strategy to avoid bullying because it's hard to be to hit someone when you're laughing. Right. Well, I hate to put any, you know, gender specificity on to anyone, but the women that I know who are comedians who grew up little girls, it was not a tool for making friends. It yeah. made us quite ostracized. It made us stand out as being different. It wasn't cool. It's it's still the same. They'll say in dating surveys now for heterosexual people, um, what, what do you look for? A sense of humor. But to a man, that means a woman who laughs at him. And to a woman, that means a man who makes her laugh. Certainly when I was growing up, being funny didn't make me cool anywhere outside my house. I didn't think I'd be a comedian. I certainly didn't for a very long time. It just happened by accident. So when you went to university, you actually started studying city planning. Yeah. Well, <laughs> What was the plan, your plan? My plan, well, I didn't want to be a city planner necessarily, though I did find that it was a very practical thing to study, and I learned a lot. I still know a lot about why the hospital's over there and different types of sewers, and, you know, it was cool. But I just knew that I needed to be in a metropolis, and this school, Ryerson University, was in the middle of Toronto. It was not suburban. It was right near Much Music, which was our MTV at the time, and I knew that that's where I needed to live. And I thought, well, how can I live right there and be in the middle of a city and then urban planning was just a program that not many people applied for. And I got in. I didn't get in. I, I actually also applied for journalism and radio and television arts. But that's super competitive at Ryerson, so I didn't get in. Did you finish the degree? No. I, here's my logic. I, um, I nearly finished. And I was always really academic before I decided not to be. I was one of those kids that would just show up and write the exam. 
but that doesn't fly so much in university. And I would take on extra shifts at Hooters, the bar and restaurant where I worked, because I would say to myself, well, I don't get paid to be at school, but I get paid to be at Hooters. So I'm not going to go to school, just work at Hooters and then show up and write the exams. And that worked for about three years. But in my final year, I just wasn't finishing the the type of you know, submissions that were necessary to graduate. It's a shame. It's a shame. But your your time at Hooters did turn out to be really useful in a way in your career. And for those who don't know it in Britain, you know, it's a notorious restaurant chain for the way it makes its female staff dress for male attention. It's kind of the tight T-shirts and you have kind of those owl eyes where your chest is. What was it like working there? And why did it prove so useful to you? I started working at Hooters by accident. Everything that's happened to me has been by accident. I had a job at a bar called Originals. And I was walking in the heat. It was September. I had just moved to Toronto. I was walking, and I was wearing black, as a lot of wait staff do. And I couldn't find, because it was my first time in a big city, I couldn't find originals. I was walking all around. I was getting really hot. I get super upset if I'm hot because I'm terribly Irish, skinned, almost ginger. I can't be in the sun. And then I saw, like, a beacon of light, this branding. I saw Hooters, and I knew what Hooters was. And I said to myself, well, if I worked at Hooters, I'd be at work by now. And instead of going to Originals, I popped into Hooters, and I asked if I could have a job. And, of course, I had skin-colored hair and hair-colored skin at the time, very blonde, 18 years old, exactly what they're looking mm-hmm. for. And they gave me a job right on the spot. And I liked it because, again, it was that archetype, this friendly, submissive cheerleader woman, the type of girl that I thought that I could learn to be. But I learned the very opposite at Hooters. Hooters, like the Golden Girls, is a matriarchy. It's loads of young women working together. The managers, who are mostly men, though there were some female managers, they just hide from us in the office. (laughs) And it is the women and the smartest, most layered, multitasking women who do well at Hooters and who can collaborate and cooperate. The girls that came in there who just looked like supermodels, they didn't last very long. Now, there are beautiful women who are extremely effective as well. But the girls that didn't have layers and didn't have anything other than what they looked like on the outside, they just didn't like it there. It's part of the thing that you also needed to have your wits about you to work out how to handle customers. A bit like those male-dominated panel shows where there's a lot of banter and some of the stuff becomes quite close to crossing the line. Yeah. Um, I mean, what what... Is that part of it? Sure. Banter was absolutely a key thing at Hooters to be able to get on with someone and chat. Not in a sexual way. I think in Britain, people don't really understand what Hooters is about. It's not a strip club. You're not meant to chat to them in a sexual way. You're just meant to be accommodating and nice and friendly and laugh at their jokes. If you're entertaining, then people would come back and see you again. And it would give this vibrant restaurant vibe if you had interesting girls there. I mean, I just really liked it. And then we had bikini pageants. I did the bikini pageant once, and I was Miss Hooters Toronto. And (sighs) I got to travel around and do more bikini pageants in Florida. And I knew that wasn't for me. But then the following year, I asked the manager if I could present the bikini pageant instead of this man that we got to do it in a bow tie. So it changes everything when you've got a woman presenting the bikini pageant. And I don't know what gave me the courage to ask. I just wanted to do it. I said, well, how about you let me present it? And he said yes, for whatever reason. 
And that's that was a real pivotal moment for me. I got to put on a glamorous dress and hold the microphone and compare, really. It was stand-up comedy. Were you subverting the pageant as you were comparing it? I was. So the questions before I came along would have been, uh, if you could be anything on the menu, what would you be and why? And the girls would say, I'd be hot, naked, spicy wings because... I'm saucy and delicious or whatever. So I would make sure that the most effective servers and the girls who chipped in the most uh, and got their hands dirty, I made sure that they came out winners of the pageant. So I'd ask questions like, Jessica, where do we keep the bin bags? And some (laughs) of the girls didn't know. And I'd be like, oh, it seems you've never taken out the bins. Well, Jessica, everybody, (laughs) you know, I asked loads of questions. I would ask some political questions. I would ask, like, just I wanted everyone to feel included and to make it fun. But also I wanted the hardest working women to shine. Some people might hear what you say and think, yeah, but, you know, it's still hooters. It's still all about. Yeah. Pleasure, you know, pleasing men and making them feel important. And that's not very feminist. How would you answer that? I mean, they're probably right. I don't think Hooters was designed to be feminist. It was created in 1983 in Clearwater, Florida. It was six businessmen, the original six. One of their secretaries used to run on her lunch hour, and that's what one would wear to run an exercise in the 80s, like slouch socks and trainers, little orange shorts and a white vest. And the men just said, that's what's sexy, just a girl next door with very little makeup on, sports on TV, beer, chicken wings. Yeah, it was certainly, I mean— it, no, it isn't feminist. Of course not. <laughs> but, it's a kind of, it's a kind of more wholesome version of the Playboy Club bunny. Isn't yeah, it? well, maybe maybe make the guys feel good. Yeah, but that is what a cheerleader is. That is mm-hmm. what um, a lot of roles in society are. Whether we make it so overt, but also um, I was eighteen, nineteen, twenty years old, still learning about my place in the world, what my role was, how I could be happiest and most effective as a young woman growing up watching Britney Spears. I wanted to be Britney Spears. I didn't know any better. But, you know, in terms of um, finding your voice as well while you were working there, because there was the special boards and things. Did you used to have some fun with those? I would do the heck out of the chalkboard. I would make it so artistic. I would make it so beautiful. And we had club sandwiches on offer one lunchtime. And they said, Catherine, go outside, write club sandwiches. So I wrote, Club sandwiches, not seals. And then I drew this Arctic landscape <laughs> with some seals. I was just trying to be funny. Um, sometimes I would write things like, because our patio was up on the roof, I'd write, don't be a fatio, climb to the patio, stuff like that. Did the seal thing go down okay? No, nah, the seal thing was a problem because, um, well, again, I was learning about myself. Or was it because you're in Canada and it's okay to club seals there? It is okay to club seals in Canada. More than okay, it is actually racist to imply that one shouldn't club seals because it is an indigenous or Inuit pastime. And they do eat seal meat and they aren't any better or worse than people who eat chickens. This is what I do. I don't just cross the line. I long jump over the line somehow. I didn't mean to, but I very innocently get myself into trouble quite a lot. And I think a lot of comedians start out trying to be edgy. They like edgy comedy or they just don't know any better, and they end up being quite offensive. And now at least I've I've learned, you know, I've honed my craft a little bit. I think I'm less offensive now. I 
I get a sense that all the time you were growing up and as a young woman kind of entering the world of work, there's this battle going on between the idea of conforming, of being, you know, a girl that guys like and the need to release your true self, you know, and not knowing quite how to channel it. Tell me about that battle and how you kind of found your comedic voice and the themes that you decided, the themes you were going to tackle. When you begin stand-up comedy, as far as I remember, it might have changed now because I'm speaking about an industry now. I'm a dozen years out from when I started doing open mics. People would tell me then, you can't dress up. You don't want to look distracting. You have to wear a hoodie and jeans. Women, we were told to be invisible. If you want to do this man's job, try to make it not so obvious that you are a lady. What sort of time is this? Um, That would be 2006, 2007 when I started. My version of dressing up is to be very glamorous. I like that kind of Mm -hmm. thing. I like hair. I like makeup. I like beautiful fashion. I like shoes. Again, it's this whole conversation about feminism. Can you be this kind of feminist or that kind of feminist? Can you care about eyelashes and getting your makeup done and also be a feminist? Of course you can. We know that now. But it really took a few strange looks and and weird gigs. They were right. Sometimes when you dress that way, it is distracting. People did not take you as seriously as a comedian if you looked too glamorous. It was um, a balance. I had to say, well, I don't want to alienate this group, and I, I should be re- really self-deprecating, or maybe I should say that I'm a slut, I'm really promiscuous because that's funny to people, or yeah. maybe I should say, oh, I can't find a man, that's funny to people. You do want to please the audience, and unfortunately, a lot of your audience come in with an unconscious bias. When you're an open mic, you're, you don't have the luxury and the privilege that I enjoy now, where I can say almost anything with confidence because people have, for the most part, come to see me on purpose. Well, they now know you and yeah. they kind of know what to expect in a way. So when you were starting out doing open mic, this is at University in Toronto, presumably. Yes. What were your, your early experiences like? Well, the comedy club was right next to the Hooters, so... Did you get some customers kind of from one to the other? No, no, no one recognized me. My girlfriends at Hooters would say to me, you should go, you should do stand-up comedy, you should do the amateur nights. And those women I'm still in touch with, you wouldn't believe they live all over the world. They do tremendous things. One of them has a tattoo studio. One of them is a doctor. One of them is a Trump supporter who goes to all the rallies and is like, you know, very pro-guns and this and that. Uh, they're all very, very different characters doing amazing things. But they were so supportive and encouraging, and they would come see my gigs. And a lot of times I would just die. I would talk about, oh, horrible things. Um, I thought I liked edgy comedy. I liked Sarah Silverman, but I wasn't sophisticated enough to understand what edgy comedy was. So a lot of times I would talk about sex or I would talk about race or I would – just try to figure out what I loved about Sarah Silverman, but I was not emulating it properly. And I would talk about, oh gosh, like abuse, just awful things. And I was offensive without being funny at all. But that was a learning curve that I had to go through because people would say, the more someone says, you are this, you are that, you're like Joan Rivers, you're like that, then you say, oh, if you're impressionable and you still don't have confidence, you say, am I? Oh, okay, well, I'll do more of that then. And it was the men would always say, you should be more edgy. You know, it's great when you're dirty. You should be so dirty. You're this dirty girl. Oh, am I? I'd had two boyfriends (laughs) in my life. I was like, okay, well, I'm that then. And I listened to a lot of unsolicited advice, which I'm sure you get as well. 
Probably not quite the kind. No one's ever told me to be more dirty. Yeah. <laughs> you know what the BBC needs. <laughs> yeah, it's a different kind of broadcasting. Um, so when did you find yourself, if I can put it that way? When did you have a sense of, I've worked it out now. This is, this is who I am. This is the kind of comedy I do. Or is it not that simple? I think there was an aha moment, if you can have one. And it is a series of baby steps and small losses and victories, of course. But in May 2012, I got to do 8 out of 10 cats in the UK for the first time. And my daughter was nearly three years old. She'd be three the following month. And I was pretty recently split from her dad. And I was with a partner that I mean, I'm glad I'm not with. Now, it was just a very vulnerable time where I was making a lot of people unhappy and I was making a lot of mistakes and I was behaving in a way that was very reckless and just trying to look after my daughter. And then when I got that opportunity, um, I had so little money that I I got a dress, like a little yellow dress from Zara, but I couldn't get any shoes, so I wore wellies because I figured, oh, they'll be behind the desk anyway. So I wore my brown wellies. I was very um, frugal, very clever that way. And I sat in my dressing room and I went, oh, my goodness, look who's on the show. Jimmy Carr, who I looked up to tremendously, but I had never really met. Sean Locke, John Richardson, Hannibal Buress was on the show, the American comedian who very infamously initiated the ultimate takedown of Mr. Bill Cosby with his stand-up. And I was very nervous. And I thought, well, I can't do their job better than they do. So I'm just going to have to do my own thing. I have no choice. I'm never going to be able to do an impression of any of these men better than they can be themselves. I have no choice but to come at this from the most unique angle that I can, and that is just my own voice. And so on 8 Out of 10 Cats, we talk about politics and current events. At the time, unfortunately, I think some football thing was happening. I never know what's going on there. But I just decided to persist with my authentic voice. And I had a unique take on things that, for whatever reason, really worked on the night. And it could have gone very badly, but it went well. And I talked about things uh, like football in my own way. So I don't know the players, but I know their wives. I can't, like, do the jokes back now and make them funny. But for whatever reason, authenticity saved the day that day. Well, it's also particularly interesting because one of the huge ongoing issues when people talk about comedy and sexism, certainly in Britain, is the male dominance of all those panel shows. And in fact, a BBC executive a couple of years ago said we're no longer going to have panel shows without women guests. But often there is just the one, which can be a whole challenge in itself. And you seem to step into that arena regularly, fearlessly, and as you say, on your own terms, because you are a very beautiful young woman, but right. you don't let it be used against you. But you can tell sometimes that conversation, because, you know, you're outnumbered, turns in a certain way, in a certain mm. male bantery way. And you obviously just develop this ability to, it's not that you're having to push it back, but it doesn't seem to bother you and you hold your own. I mean, that's very kind of you to say. I don't know that that's always true. And sometimes I look quite dodgy on those shows as well if I've consumed gluten that week. You know, you never know what you're going to look like. Some days I get too much Botox. I go overboard. I've looked back and gone, whoa, slow down on that, Catherine. People very rightly tweet me and go, your lips are too big this week. True. Guilty. Um, But I think that is all unintentional. I think I've always just been pretty resilient. And I know that if I do a bad job, nobody dies. My success or failure on any given panel show 
doesn't really matter in the long term. And on that first date of 10 cats, when everything in my life was so desperate, so chaotic, at that time, I found very simple gratitude. I thought, well, I don't have any shoes on, you know, <laughs> like my dad growing up in Cork. But my daughter is happy and healthy and safe and well. And from then on, and I don't think everyone needs to be a mother. You don't all need to have kids. But for me, becoming a parent was a true revelation in what really matters. And it sounds silly, but that beacon, that one true gratitude, that one true thing, if if my daughter's always happy and healthy and safe, then all the other stuff doesn't bother me. I don't get – I don't mind if I'm – shouted over and there's I don't a fearlessness mind. about you that that shows um and i think it's one of the things that women who watch you really admire i want to ask about some of your routines because mm-hmm. I find it breathtaking, these amazing routines you do about privilege. And there's a great one where you're kind of calling out Taylor Swift over comments she made to Nicki Minaj. How has that come to be such an important part of the comedy you do? To be intersectional is a risk because I never want to appear to be explaining something to women of color or different ethnicities. Me as a white woman who basically looks like Taylor Swift's mom, like I could not look more right wing. I really look like one of the moms for Kavanaugh, Orange County, Real Housewives of, you know, I get that that's what I look like. And I would hate to be misunderstood or to have that misconstrued and to have it look, you know, to to the black women that I'm trying to advocate for in that joke to think that I'm attacking them or that I'm making light of any situation. You know, it is mm-hmm. kind of risky, but I don't mind taking those risks because I think you just have to stick your neck out sometimes. It's and- totally sincere, though. And I think yeah. talking about what you were watching growing up and those shows mm. in the 90s that you loved, I think that's what's powerful is that you haven't overthought it. It's not a pose. No. You genuinely feel this way. Oh, that's true because there's such a lot of virtue signaling now. And you actually see it with the men. Um, and I know a lot of them are are feminists and they're really trying to make the world a better place. But I also say, I mean, sometimes you look at these guys and you go, for every speech about social justice, add another chaperone. Like some of them are the worst ones. The ones are like, we got to treat women nicely. They turn out to be the creepiest ones. Um, didn't Harvey Weinstein turn out to have been a huge donor to oh, a major feminist charity? Of course he yeah. was. But um, no, I don't really worry about it because I think – um, as far as authenticity is concerned, I, I don't second guess that much if I'm understood or misunderstood. I just try again to like move forward and be as sincere as I can and run the risk that I might be, you know, misinterpreted. Do you get any criticism? Sometimes when I used to say, uh, oh, all I wanted to be growing up was a strong, powerful, beautiful black woman, you know, that to some people came off a little Rachel Dolezal. They were like, well, why are you trying oh, the woman to... Who- said she was black but actually wasn't, but had adopted a black identity. But now, if we watch the Netflix special about her life, her story is very complex, and we learn kind of why she identified with that part of her family. But anyway, yeah, and I'm certainly not trying to, uh, what's the word, misappropriation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm not trying to do that. It was the fact that when I was little, yeah, I saw it. I saw that. Beyonce's sexuality came from a place of not victimhood, but of alpha power. I have to personally say your impersonations of Beyonce are magnificent. Thank you. 
But they do make some people go, hang on a sec, what are you trying to say here? But yeah. <laughs> Now, you've lived in Britain since 2008. Is that right? And yes. you've really mined the comedy in a, in, a, in a really light, you've done it in a light way, but of being a single mum in London, which is a, a thing. Being a London mother anyway and being a single parent as well. And you kind of mock your Canadian background a bit. Mm. How do you see yourself as a comedian identity-wise? Well, I am a British comedian, whether you like it or not. I developed here. I'm very lucky to have developed here because I started comedy in Canada but only got to do just a little bit. And I am now banned from the comedy club where I started because I broke up with someone who was friends with the owner and he sent me a text. I asked, oh, I'm back in Canada. Could I do some stand-up there? And he said, I'm sorry. I made a promise to an old friend. When you broke up with him, I would never book you again. I was like, oh, patriarchy, what? Oh. Anyway, I've done very well since then. So, haha. <laughs> But um, I'm not a Canadian comedian. I just mm -hmm. did a few gigs there. I am a Canadian person with a lot of American cultural influences as far as television and music. Um, you know, that, that whole pop culture is concerned. But all of my comedy career has been in London and British and Scottish and Welsh clubs. I'm interested in how you've dealt with rejection and failure because that has been a, a big part of where you developed as a comedian. Can you tell me about that? And in a sense, what advice you'd give to others who might be looking at you and thinking, I'd like to, to yeah. be a comedian. I like it. I like rejection and failure a lot. Now I really love it because I have developed this spirituality where I truly believe if you don't get something, then you weren't meant to get it. And I don't feel that I'm competing with other comedians or certainly not with other female comedians. I think there are enough opportunities to go around. Luckily, my professional life has been mostly wins and very few losses, touch wood, though there have been setbacks and there are jobs I want that I don't get and, and that's fine with me. And it stings a little bit at first, but then you just have to be resilient and move on because, again, it's not the most important thing in the world if I don't get a job that I want. But my personal life has been fraught with mistakes that I have made and pain that I have caused people or pain that has been inflicted upon me or problems that I've had to find resolutions to or rise above or just forget about. And I just think I believe in attracting positive energy to yourself. I say you don't call the demons into the room. Whatever you think, I, I believe you will move closer to. So if you think you're going to fail all the time and if you think about someone who hurt you or if you think about the mistakes that you've made, that will live rent-free in your mind. It will take up space and it will make you sick. And then if you just move forward and think about the lovely things and if you have gratitude and you're really actively grateful for the things that you have, then more things will come to you. And it's really what I believe. I just never, I, I'm grateful for my biggest mistakes because I was with someone for a while that was quite a bully. I don't want to throw around the word abusive, but there are different types of abuse. Yeah. And um, sometimes I get really shameful about that, really sad that I invited that energy into all of our lives. But now I think, oh, do you know what? That person actually indirectly taught me how to stand up for myself quite a lot. And I got out of that and I'm not there anymore. And I'm a stronger person because of that. Every failure has a lesson, and you always come out of suffering better than you went in. Oh, it's true. It's true, isn't it? Catherine Ryan, thank you so much. Thank you.
This podcast was made by Intelligence Squared. I'm Samira Ahmed, and the producer was Farah Jasset. <laughs>